0: Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel and welcome to Prime Time Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors thinking? You will hear it all on Prime Time Crime, the podcast. I'm Katrina Daniel, this is Primetime Crime, and this segment is all about that baby-faced, blonde-haired, blue-eyed cannibal, Jeffrey Dahmer, known as the Milwaukee Monster. Remember him? A guy who killed 17 young men and cannibalized some of their body parts. He got away with it from 1978 to 1991, but he got caught and convicted. He tried the insanity plea thing, it didn't work, and he was sentenced to 16 life sentences. He lasted less than three years and then himself became a murder victim when another killer named Christopher Scarver beat him to death in a prison bathroom. Now, all these years later, Scarver tells a New York newspaper why he killed Dahmer. Turns out, Dahmer annoyed him by using and creating grotesque food displays imitating body parts in the prison cafeteria. Not a good thing for a guy accused of cannibalism to do in front of the other inmates. Joining me today, a journalist who has covered Dahmer from the moment he got arrested to his trial and beyond. She wrote a best selling book then and now is updating it to add Scarver's version, Annie Schwartz.
1: Jeffrey Dahmer addresses the court after sentencing in February of 1992. I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I knew I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. Though he accepted the blame for his barbaric crimes, cannibalizing, even crudely lobotomizing some of his victims, Dahmer nonetheless asked for forgiveness. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a Holocaust. And if I could give my life right now to bring their loved ones back, I would do it. I am so very sorry. I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done.
0: It is my great pleasure to interview today, a woman that I've been dying to interview for at least three months, ever since I found out she existed. This is Annie Schwartz from Milwaukee, and she is an expert, if you call it that, an expert on a cannibalistic serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. Annie, thanks so much for joining us. Trina, thank
1: you for having me. I just sense my mother and father, are, you know, smiling from heaven at the, at the you know, at the prelude expert on a cannibal serial killer you know it's why they sent me to all the great schools my whole life I'm sure
0: I know and you'll be making penance when you say gee mom and dad I'm really sorry but hey look at me I'm a successful author and I really know my stuff so there is a balance (laughs) I suspect only if I wrote
1: about the boy wizard going to wizard school but yeah let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer how'd you get involved in the Jeffrey Dahmer case Katrina, I was a young reporter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was uh, one of the reporters who are uh, working and toiling at that 24-hour-a-week, part-time, you know, dream job at the newspaper, while also waitressing, because waitressing is absolutely important if you're going to be, you know, an author of any kind. (laughs) And uh, I was working at the paper. I wanted the I wanted the crappy shift. I wanted the bad shift. I took the night cops shift because it was available. And that means Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 4 p.m. to about midnight or 1 p.m. at the newspaper. It was the worst shift because you don't get to have a social life. But I didn't want to have a social life. I wanted to tell stories. And I knew that the police beat was the best place for stories. That's when this stuff happens. It doesn't happen at 11 o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. And I wanted to be there and I wanted to learn all about it. So I got a call from a source at about 1130 at night uh, at home. Uh, These were the days of hard lines, you know, kids, this is uh, no cell phones, no internet, no, you know, there is none of that. Uh, This is a phone call on a good old hard line saying, Annie, and I knew who it was uh, when they called me and they said, we Have a guy, and I think he's been saving body parts in his apartment. Now I know that the cops do like to have a little bit of fun with you when you're a new reporter, but I wasn't that new. I'd been on the beat for a few years, and there was something in his voice, Katrina, that told me that that this was this was something that I should go check out. So I drove out to the
0: neighborhood in Milwaukee to 25th and Kilbourne, and. All by yourself at 11.30 at night to a guy who keeps body parts in his apartment? Well,
1: you know, they didn't say that he was still, you know, killing people in the street. So I went. Uh, I was very curious, which is what makes us good reporters, right? And good journalists. And so I just went really without thinking twice about it. I got there and uh, the story started to unfold uh, right in front of me. It was clear from the moment I pulled up that this was a scene that was very different than any other crime scene that I had covered. How was it different? So it's 1991. Uh, Typically when you show up at a crime scene, there are a whole lot of people that are standing around, they're milling about, they're talking, uh, they're, it's very noisy because everybody's telling each other what they think is going on. This crime scene was not like that. This crime scene was so, so, it was so different. Uh, the people were all very quiet. Uh, there was kind of a hushed feeling over the crowd, which is different already than any crime scene. But then I started speaking with Pamela Bass, one of the women that were, that was standing at the scene. She's clearly one of the residents who was evacuated from the building. And she said, uh, you know, it, it looks like our neighbor Jeff was you know, was doing something awful in his apartment. It was killing people. Remember, it's the early hours. So, looking through our yeah. prism now, you know what did people think about it? They didn't know what to think. Uh, but soon, I went inside the building. Uh, I got up to the uh, got up to the apartment. I walked just in over the threshold. I didn't, you know, come bursting into the door. But I did step over the threshold and look in the apartment. To the naked eye, there really it was nothing that indicated the horrors that had happened there. To the naked eye, it looks like a single guy's apartment. Now, the furniture was a little bit tussled because uh, Dahmer had had fought with the officers once he knew he was being arrested. But what I didn't know at that time just yet was what was going on in the bedroom in the back of the apartment.
0: Was it a one bedroom? It was like a one bedroom and did he have barrels or... How did he keep body parts in what locations? Well, we found out later when,
1: after i had gotten out of the apartment, I just took it in as a scene, like a murder scene, and then walked out of the apartment. But later the uh, men in these like decontamination suits brought out a giant blue barrel where it looked like that is where he was saving some of the body parts. Uh, They brought out a refrigerator, which is where he had kept... Uh, uh, human heads and other body parts. They brought out boxes with skulls that he had bleached and painted. And all of this is coming out of the apartment. All of this is being loaded into the back of a the medical examiner's station wagon and other vehicles that they had to bring to haul this, uh, this stuff away. And it was happening in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where... The worst thing you worried about before this case became internationally famous was, oh, my gosh, we have that terrible image because of Laverne and Shirley. And that was the worst thing we had. And that night, it changed. It changed everything for the city, for the police department and for our image around the world.
0: He had a couple of brushes with the law. One time, apparently a man whom he had lobotomized stumbled out into the front and somehow cops were called and he convinced them that it was just his drunk boyfriend. How does that work?
1: You know, Katrina, we would love for serial killers to walk around and look like Charles Manson, like if they had the swastika carved in their head and the crazy eyes, we'd be like, okay, great. We can identify that guy. That guy is for sure a serial killer or a mass murderer. Dahmer wasn't like that. One of the reasons that serial killers go so long without getting caught is because they're master manipulators and they're really, really good at it. And Dahmer was really, really good at it. So the a young man that he had uh, that he had picked up uh, in a mall uh, was uh, was with him. Uh, Dahmer had drugged him already because this was by now this was the. Uh, the pattern that he was engaging in with his victims. He would pick them up in a bar, offer them money to come back to his house to take naked photographs and they would go willingly and Dahmer would drug them. And when they were incapacitated, he would strangle them. He would often have sex with them. And this was all, you know, this was all a part of Dahmer's ritual. You know, I, I say these things out loud, and it's still to this day, even though it's 30 years after the case, it, it's still hard to believe that, you know, we we talk about it like it's casual conversation. But but at the time, this was so horrifying that nobody could really wrap their brain around it. Now we're used to thinking about serial killers. Someone's using power tools in the apartment next door in 2021. We're thinking things that we didn't think in 1991, weren't we? So, Conor Axanthus Bone was a young a 14-year-old boy that Dahmer had picked up. He looked like he was a great deal older. Uh, Dahmer had already uh, drilled a hole in his head because he was preparing to pour muriatic acid in there. He wanted to try to experiment with creating zombies. Dahmer's entire motivation was to try and create a person that wouldn't want anything from him, wouldn't ask anything of him, and he could just do whatever he wanted. And that's what he tried to accomplish with, with this kind of zombie uh activity. Well, Dahmer had drilled a hole in Conorac Synthesimphone's skull and run out to get beer, to get more beer, and left the boy alone in the apartment. At some point, Conorak phone actually was coming out of the uh the medication or the, you know, the sleeping meds that Dahmer had given him, and he stumbled out of the out of the apartment. Now, he's walking in the alley, he's naked, and he's incoherent. So, a neighbor woman sees him in the alley and calls the police. The police come, and Dahmer, when he sees the lights over by his apartment, comes running up. Well, it doesn't run up because Dahmer never showed any kind of urgency or nervousness or anything like that so Dahmer comes up to the officers and he says "Ah, oh, this is my friend Jim so sorry he's my boyfriend um, you know we were together he got a little drunk he always gets drunk when we're together come on Jim we need to go back upstairs Conorak did not show any resistance to Dahmer Okay. He didn't, he didn't try to flag the officers. He's incoherent. So Dahmer, again, we've got to remember that he's a master manipulator. He is absolutely convincing the police that this is his boyfriend. So the police go with Dahmer and Conorak back up to the apartment and they see pretty much what I saw when I had stood at that front door. You see an apartment that looks like it belongs to a single guy. Conorak's clothes were on the corner of the sofa and they were all nicely folded neatly. There were Polaroids of of Conorak naked and posing. And Dahmer showed those to the officers, which is what helped convince them that they were were together, that this was consensual. What the officers didn't know, and I know they wish they had known was that one of Dahmer's victims' dead bodies was laying in the bedroom right behind the living room. But the officers did not have probable cause to search that apartment. They had what they believed were two consenting male adults. And they didn't take it farther. They took it as far as they could. They went upstairs. I'm not being an apologist from the police. I understand. Because all of us wish all of us wish that these guys would have had, in addition to everything else hanging on their on their gun belts that night, we wish they would have had a crystal ball, don't we? But they
0: didn't. Why did Jeffrey Dahmer elect to go to trial? I mean, did he like the attention? Did not they not offer him a plea deal? Well, he in the end, he did plea.
1: In the end, he pleaded guilty, but his lawyer, Jerry Boyle, and Dahmer decided that they wanted to go to trial on the guilty by reason of mental disease or defect defense. So they want what we call an NGI plea, not guilty by reason of insanity. So Dahmer ostensibly wanted to be studied. There's nothing that says Dahmer was sincere about anything that ever came out of his mouth because I I don't think he he was. He was a manipulator. And he, you know, he he went to tr- so the trial that he went to was on the insanity defense and not on his guilt or innocence. He pleaded to his guilt, but it was the insanity defense because he thought maybe he could go to a mental hospital. He thought it could be studied. Uh, he thought maybe he could, you know, get a, you know, get a deal like Hinckley or some of the other people that have gone on to, uh, to go to mental hospitals. And then when they're adjudicated mentally ill, and then they, they go on to, you know, to, to live in obscurity.
0: Dahmer was pretty smart, wasn't he?
1: Dahmer was very smart. A lot of the experts that I've interviewed for the book told me that serial killers are typically smarter than the average person, a higher intelligence. So that is is really what they were, uh, you know, what they were dealing with. I think that, gosh, you know what, Katrina, I think about the fact that if you want to, you can go turn on your TV tonight and you can go watch Dexter or another yeah. series that tells you all yeah. about serial killers and normalizes if there's such a thing the conversation. But this wasn't that time. So that's really what we were what we were
0: dealing with at that time. All right, let's talk about Christopher Scarver. Tell us what Christopher did to Jeffrey in the slam. Christopher
1: Scarver was a murderer who was already serving a life sentence at Columbia Correctional when Jeffrey Dahmer, was booked into Columbia Correctional in 1992. Dahmer was in prison for about two years before Christopher Scarver, uh, while Jeffrey Dahmer was cleaning a bathroom, uh, was able to get in the bathroom with a piece of a weight bench and beat Dahmer to death in that bathroom. Now, I have interviewed countless corrections officers through a very little space in the door that they opened for me when I came to their houses. and. The consensus really was: this was not a great plot, but this was absolutely a, a, a screw up on the part of the corrections officers, who had the pod all, and all of the the camera banks behind him. But his back is to them, and he's talking about the fishing trip, or talking about it, or the hunting trip, or talking to other people around, and this is all happening in the in the bathroom now. Did anybody's heart break when the highest risk prisoner in the Columbia Correctional Institution, arguably the most famous,
0: was killed in the bathroom? Nobody. Nobody. So, gee darn, how could you do this to poor old Jeff? Well, exactly. You know, it
1: it really wasn't. Nobody cared. And Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered along with the other very high profile prisoner who was there at the time, Jesse Anderson, who... Was not exactly, you know, prom queen either at Columbia Correctional because he had killed his wife and blamed it on two two black men. He said two black men killed my wife. He studied the Charles Stewart case from Boston, and that's what he used
0: to tell police that he uh, he hadn't killed his wife. Do you think the corrections guard did this on purpose, or I mean, because according to Scarver, if you can believe him, which is you know, you never know. Um, he said Dahmer was always escorted by by corrections guards everywhere he went because he wasn't popular and because most of his victims were of color and a lot of people were pissed at that. Do you think they I, I said, hey, we're going to take a five minute break on purpose like Scarver suggests? There is an old saying, never attribute to malice
1: that which can be explained by stupidity. And I think in this case, it really was... Really, I think it really was. Uh, I, I I don't. I think that they absolutely screwed up. Yeah, but I also don't believe that there was. I don't think they were paying the kind of attention they should. I think that how are the most high risk people? How are three convicted killers hanging out together? Or how are they anywhere near each other
0: in this facility? I mean, that's just crazy. What did uh, Scarver say made him do this? He came up with a really weird um, explanation, a horrific explanation. And I think you're going to explore that in the resurgence or the republishing of your book, correct? Correct. I'm one of the people that doesn't believe
1: anything that comes out of Christopher Scarver's mouth. Okay. When Christopher Scarver comes out and gives all of these reasons that he did this, one of them being oh, he was joking with everybody, he was taunting everyone uh, about his cannibalism. That goes contrary to every single thing that everybody, including forensic psychologists and psychiatrists who had contact with Dahmer, goes against everything that, that they know about his personality. Dahmer you know, might've been a prankster in, in, in high school, but the Jeffrey Dahmer that went to prison after being convicted, was someone who absolutely just wanted to be left alone. He did not interact with people. He was not, what I understand is that he was not doing any of the things that Christopher Christopher Scarber said he did. Christopher Scarver had a story about Dahmer arranging the food and making con, you know, conversation about the food. I, I don't believe neither does, you know, neither do a lot of people that knew Dahmer, knew his personality, certainly much more intimately than I ever did. Um, don't believe that that's something that he that he did.
0: Having laid eyes on Dahmer in person, what's your takeaway? What were you thinking at the time? Got this blond-haired, blue-eyed, semi-decent-looking guy. I think that my lasting impression
1: of Dahmer is always going to be. I wish that we would have known. However, he looked like everybody else. He was vanilla. You wouldn't remember him in, in, if you saw him in the bar, they remembered him in the gay bars because he was a regular and he was kind of good looking, but he's not somebody you would remember. He's not the guy, you know, wearing the lampshade at the party. He's the guy maybe standing back against the wall, watching the guy who's wearing a lampshade at the party. So I think what struck me was just that he was so normal looking. I can still remember the day as a young reporter, when we were all sitting in court for his initial appearance. And it's kind of like now when, you know, when you're about to see the mugshot of the shooter yeah. or yeah. somebody and you go, oh yeah. But Dahmer walked into court and we were all really taken aback. We were all really taken aback by the idea that he looked like a regular person. You know, we would like him to, to have horns or or to to indicate in some way that he's crazy. But that just
0: was not there. He had an interesting, in a negative way, childhood. Can you tell us about that? He did. He had a childhood that is not uncommon among serial
1: killers. So he was somebody who uh, he abused animals or killed animals and then took it farther, though. So he was interested in, in what the animals looked like inside. So my understanding of all of the the research that I have read and the people that I have interviewed is that Dahmer wasn't torturing the animals. He killed the animals. And then his fascination was what to do with the animal once it was dead. Does he save it? And he did. See, he saved some of the animal heads on posts out in the woods where he grew up at his home in Bath, Ohio. Uh, His mother and father divorced when he was young. Now, this doesn't mean that every kid whose parents divorce end up, you know, becoming a serial killer and, you know, killing 17 people and engaging in cannibalism. But I think we, we line up all the different factors. You know, his mother, Joyce, excuse me, his mother, uh, yes, his mother, Joyce, um, had taken uh, psychotropic medication when she was pregnant with Jeffrey. There was a question about whether or not that had an effect. His mother was mentally ill his whole life. His father divorced her. She moved away to California. The father remarries and the new wife, not so excited about Jeffrey. So when the family that they really, he began to become very marginalized in his own, in his own
0: family. So they were not aware. They knew something was wrong, but couldn't. With their fingers on it or didn't want to. He also developed an alcohol problem, correct? He became a heavy drinker? Yeah, he was drinking at school. He was drinking, I mean, they were complaining, the school was was telling his father that he was
1: coming drunk to class in high school. So obviously he's drinking to try to mask something. He's got this activity with animals that is, that's pretty curious. Uh, he is uh, socially awkward uh, to the point of, you know, really not knowing how to function around his classmates. I remember going to Bath, Ohio after I'd broken the story, the Dahmer story, and I interviewed his prom date. I found his prom date and she was, she was just kind of like, you know, it it was just a strange night because all he did was get very, very drunk and, you know, he wasn't interested in, in, in anything, you know, romantic, certainly. And, uh, that was her memory of him. Again, we've got the benefit, you know, that's the one. Yeah, hindsight just don't want us to forget, is yeah. that we are so wicked smart in 2021, aren't we? Yeah. Well, yep. But 30 years
0: ago, no, nope. it's like, you know, hey, I wonder what the neighbor is doing. Talk to me about your new book. What are you going to be focusing on? I know that you are adding a chapter and updating your book. I am. The book was, uh, I wrote the book and published it back in 1992.
1: And again, 30 years later. Uh, and this year will be the, the 30th, I don't know, do we say anniversary? Anniversary usually just seems kind of strange, but it is the 30th anniversary of the discovery. So I have written a last chapter to the book. The book is now going to be called Monster, the True Story of the Jeffrey Dahmer Murders. Okay. It's going to be out in September of 2021. And it's the story of the case. It's written in the first person because it's my experience starting from that very first night and taking you all the way through the trial. But the original book ended when Jeffrey Dahmer walked out the door to Columbia Correctional Institution and was sentenced to 15 life terms. So we're taking taking a look at what kind of reflections do people who were involved in the case have 30 years later? What kind of reflections do some of the cops have that are still alive? Because a number of the cops that were associated with the Dahmer case are dead. Yeah. Um, The... uh, I went back and talked to the district attorney. How does he feel 30 years later? I I talked to the medical examiner, the medical examiner who did the autopsy then and the current medical examiner in Milwaukee County who is a national expert uh, who actually did the the, uh, autopsy on Lacey Peterson. He talks to me a little bit about where we are now in terms of DNA, why this may not Mm -hmm. have been, you know, an, an unsolved case or why we might've known that people were disappearing. You know, that was the other thing, is that this? there are a number of people now who want to have a conversation about Dahmer because of the climate that we have right now in this country when it comes to police and who is believed and who is not
0: believed. That's correct, and he did have that blonde-haired, blue-eyed, innocent little Aryan look.
1: There are people that are absolutely going to call it white privilege. Yeah. And there are people that are going to say, how in the world do you expect you know a couple of Milwaukee police officers back in 1991 to know that this is what this guy was concealing. So in 30 years we've really come a we've come a, a long way. I also talked to one of those officers about 30 years later
0: and include that conversation in this book. As an officer or a prosecutor in this case, how do you unsee all this stuff? I don't think that once you see something horrific that you can unsee it. You can't unsee
1: what we all saw during the Dahmer trial in fact I think I can't remember if it was a court reporter or a juror I feel like it was a court reporter uh, there was someone who was working uh working the trial that did end up committing suicide Ooh. the officer Rolf Mueller who was the one that opened up the refrigerator and found a yeah, yeah, head yeah. in the refrigerator Rolf died recently, he died just uh, in early 2021. And Rolf had told me, we had had a conversation before he passed and he said he never got over it. He said it disturbed him forever. He was haunted by it. But you know, if you think about it, policing hasn't even begun to talk about officer wellness until recently. Right. Right. How in the world do we talk to this, this officer who found a human head in
0: the refrigerator and then saw all the other things that he saw? I can't imagine what he lived with. No, I can't either. And it, like I say, you can't unsee something. Um, your new book comes out in September? The book comes out in, in September. The new book
1: is called Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. And this time around, uh, there will actually be a, an audio book so that I can tell the story myself, which will be kind of interesting.
0: Thanks so much for your time. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you for forever. Send us an autographed copy. I promise I might even deliver it in person. You would be
1: more than welcome. I have a guest bedroom. Perfect. I was I'd rather hear that you had a you know you had points at the four seasons, but that's okay. Uh, I have that too, but we'll be good either way. Thank you so much for your time, Annie Schwartz. Katrina, I appreciate the chance to to talk with you as well. And I, you know, if I can end with with this quick piece, which is a lot of people aren't crazy about the fact that we're still talking about this case 30 years <laughs> later. And I think as a as a former journalist, you as a, a former journalist, I think as journalists. We got into the business because we like to tell the story. Yes. And I think we need to keep talking about the story. Otherwise, we don't learn anything. And otherwise, nothing changes.
0: Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime Underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.